Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Hi everyone, my name is Melissa Boswell, a co-host of Biomechanics on Our Minds, but today you're listening to an episode of Student Voices, a series from Biomechanics on Our Minds. Who do I hear? Voices. Student is me. Voices. Student. Voices. 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 I'm really excited to introduce the guest for today's episode, Andrew Vygotsky. Andrew is a biomedical engineering PhD candidate and statistics master's student studying computational neuroscience at Northwestern University. He's also the American Society of Biomechanics student representative, which is how we met. Uh, So thanks for being on the show today, Andrew. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I wanted to have you on the show because you've authored some really interesting papers that help to improve some fundamental issues in biomechanics and exercise science research. And so I'm really excited to talk about those with you today. But um, first, I like starting off with asking how you knew you wanted to be a biomechanist. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, So I didn't always want to be a biomechanist. Uh, I originally, I was really into computer science for a while, and that's actually what I uh, started my college career path on. Um, and I did my freshman year in computer science, and I actually left after my freshman year and got a job as a software engineer. And it was several months into that position where I realized, wow, this uh, I don't think I can do do this and just write code all day. Yeah. Um, and at the time, I was really into fitness, and I wanted to learn more about the human body and how it uh, responds to stimuli and how it adapts. Uh, so I went back to school for kinesiology and exercise science. Okay. And since I was a bit more quantitative at the time, I uh, came upon biomechanics and I thought it was great. I loved physics and this is just applying physics to the human body. So if I can understand like resistance training more through this uh, field of study, then that's great. Yeah. Your love of physics definitely shows through in the papers that you wrote, um, which kind of makes uh, more sense now that... um, I think about it. <laughs> the last time we talked at the International Society of Biomechanics in Calgary uh, this past summer, your research focus shifted a bit from biomechanics to neuroscience, more in like the pain realm. And so I was wondering if you could tell me about how that happened and yeah, does I guess how your area of focus changed? Yeah. So I can see that being like a really, really stark shift from the outside. Um So pain is something I've been interested in for quite some time, especially coming from the field of biomechanics. It's always something that we kind of touch on, but we never really delve deep into it because we know how complicated it is. Um, So while I've been following the pain literature since uh, probably like 2012 or so, I actually published one or two papers in it. And I took a class with, we have one of the top pain researchers here at Northwestern. I took a class with him my first year so. I've been pretty interested in pain for a while, but the switch didn't happen until actually after my first committee meeting. Um, Yeah, so I was in biomechanics for essentially my entire master's, and 
uh, the beginning of my PhD. And what I initially proposed was something that many may view as kind of esoteric. So I was interested in intramuscular heterogeneities. Um, and my committee, they had some good constructive and critical feedback. Uh, but one of the big things was just to take a step back and think what's the most important thing I could be working on right now. That's some really deep feedback. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so while this is something I thought that was like super interesting in terms of uh, from an intellectual standpoint, I didn't necessarily think it would be the most fruitful in terms of being the most important thing I could work on. And just taking a step back, the most important thing I could work on uh, in my mind that I was actually interested in was pain. Um, so mm -hmm. how do you define important? Uh, so the ability to make a large impact on society and improve the lives of others. So there are a lot of things in basic science that they're tremendously important in terms of they could have applications, but their direct applications are not fully understood until you make the discoveries, right? Um, so with pain, it's something that I felt almost no matter what I do, I kind of know what I'm working towards. And that in many ways is kind of comforting. Yeah. And, and in addition, since I did start a master's in uh, statistics and I'm pretty much done with that master's now, uh, I knew the field of neuroimaging and computational neuroscience would be super relevant to everything I picked up in statistics and it would kind of be like a very natural transition. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really cool that you got that feedback and were able to shift into something that you feel like is really impactful because I think there's different takes that people have on this. One is like, oh, you know, you do your PhD and, you know, it's work that that you do to get your PhD and, and nothing really comes of it, which I think isn't a great way to think of it. And so having the advice to do something that you feel like is impactful, I feel like is great because it helps you stay motivated throughout grad school because it's a long haul to do something that you might not feel is benefiting society. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, one other thing that came up was, I guess, yeah, I did all this biomechanics in my master's and the move to computational neuroscience, it's not just like biomechanics is still totally stuff that I'm excited about. I love biomechanics. I love muscles. Um, but the it there's kind of diminishing returns with education. I've been in biomechanics for a while. I was doing some uh, like decently high level work for my master's. And I guess switching over to computational neuroscience, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of humbling in a way in that uh, it's a totally new field. I have so much to learn, but uh, it also allows me to just go in every day and every day I'm learning so much and it feels like I'm really growing and I'm really challenging myself. And I also really like just getting these different perspectives on things and having different perspectives going to problems. Uh, so a biomechanist might approach something totally different than a computational neuroscientist. And now if I go back to biomechanics, I'll probably approach something differently than just a classically trained uh, or biomechanist. So um, I do like having these different perspectives and I like having the opportunity to really grow and think about things differently. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I've noticed that a lot when working with psychologists and um, thinking more about, I think that's helped me think more about the person behind the research and think like how, what they're thinking really can affect 
can affect your research. And so it's really neat to kind of, yeah, get different perspectives from, from different fields. Yeah. And it's kind of funny too. Uh, a lot of people talk about research as if it's this super objective thing, but if you go to one person and they design or think about or analyze a study totally different than a second person, it kind of makes you think like how objective is this whole process? And uh, we all have our biases that are due to training or due to beliefs or whatever, but they do leak into research. And I think training and how you're taught to think has a lot to do with that. Yeah, that's so true. And I was even thinking like when we were talking about what's impactful, like what's impactful to one researcher might be different to another, like for someone designing some um, software that a lot of people can use to answer research questions might be like what's most meaningful to them. Whereas like another person, you know, designing like clinical applications might be more impactful. So it's like, yeah, it's cool to get the, um, get to work with different people and kind of bridge together in different ways of thinking. Oh yeah, totally. Well, I can say one thing, uh, pain does make grant writing a lot easier. Really? (laughs) Uh, just cause everybody knows what pain is. Everybody's familiar with it. Um, if you have something that's kind of more tangible and people understand, um, and that people know chronic pain is a massive problem and uh, there's a huge societal burden, it's a lot easier to kind of appeal to, um, to anyone for whom you're writing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. Well, um, I wanted to start talking about your, um, an article that you wrote that was published recently in August, 2019 in the journal biomechanics. And, um, the title is mechanical misconceptions. Have we lost the mechanics in sports biomechanics? Yeah. So, I guess we can just start off with what what you mean by mechanical misconceptions. So to me, a uh, mechanical misconception is, I mean, uh, not to be tautological, but a misconception about <laughs> mechanics. Um, <laughs> but it's it's the way somebody thinks about a mechanical construct in a way that's not totally correct, and or the way that somebody talks about a mechanical construct that's not totally correct. And I think a lot of these things may stem from language because language is kind of the mapping between how we think about things and communicate uh, uh, about things and the constructs themselves. So if this mapping gets messed up, then what does that mean for everything uh, between the actual construct and the communication or the thinking? That means all of that could go awry too. Right. So what was your inspiration for writing a paper on mechanical misconceptions in biomechanics specifically? This started when I was an undergrad, actually, and it was a combination of conversations with two of my mentors at the time, uh, one of whom was Dr. Henriks, uh, who's the last author on the paper, and the other was Brett Contreras, who actually didn't end up uh, being on the final paper. Um, but... Uh, Brett Contreras introduced me to Jason Lake, and a few we were going back and forth about a few of these things, like what does power or directional power, what does that really mean? A lot of these sports scientists are reporting it, but it doesn't make sense uh, mechanically. And then uh, Dr. Henricks would, I was taking one of his classes at the time, and he would talk a lot about uh, this confusion with joint forces. And if you do look at the literature, it does seem that 
these misconceptions or a lack of understanding due to maybe terminology or just people not being completely educated about these constructs, it does lead to false conclusions. And then these things kind of propagate within the literature. And I mean, next thing you know, maybe people are carrying out studies on an entirely false premise. Um, so that's wasted research dollars, wasted time, uh, wasted uh, participant time. So I think this even goes into the ethical realm of uh, if we're not doing these things properly and we're not sure about what we're doing and clear about what we're doing, uh, then we're uh, we're kind of wasting time. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and kind of diving deeper into some of the topics that you talk about. And so you mentioned confusion around terminology of joint reaction forces. And so in your paper, you refer to two different types of joint reaction for forces, one that includes internal forces that you call joint contact forces, and then those that do not include the internal forces, which you call net joint forces. But I think this specifically is more common than it should be in biomechanics, and I think really hits to the point where it can end up um, propagating through the field with false conclusions. Yeah, so joint forces specifically, I agree, it's a huge one. And the idea is, is that if you do inverse dynamics on uh, some sort of rigid body model, you're going to get out these net joint forces uh, at each joint. And these net joint forces, it'd be really easy to interpret if we didn't have muscles. Uh, but we do have muscles. And since we have these active actuators that are producing additional forces, um, it's not just the forces that kind of constrain the joint in place that we have to worry about now. Now we have to worry about the forces due to these muscles in addition to those forces that kind of keep the joint together. And it's, but since these muscle forces are so great, uh, you'll often be led to the long conclusion about both the magnitude and the direction of forces if you rely on just these net joint forces. Um, and as some of Carl Zellick uh, work from his lab has shown, you'll even be misled in terms of the timing of peak forces and things like that. Uh, so these things, it doesn't seem that they're even strongly correlated across all subjects. Um, and I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about things like injury, you're interested in the actual stress on tissues, uh, because the idea being if you repeatedly stress tissues, especially over a shorter duration, um, you might, I don't know, fracture a tibia. Uh, so it's these stresses that are actually on the tissues that we care about. So if you're just looking at these net joint forces or maybe ground reaction forces, uh, there's kind of a tacit logic there that, okay, this is what the tissue is experiencing, but uh, we know that not to be the case. Yeah. And you make, you talk about the example of ground reaction forces and how they're, um, it's often assumed that ground reaction forces cause overuse injuries um, and a reduction in ground reaction forces will lead to a reduction in injury. Um, but it's actually been shown that decreasing the ground reaction forces can actually correspond to an increase in joint contact force and potentially increase injury, which seems counterintuitive at first. But um, when you think about yeah, when you make sure to think about these like internal forces that are going on, it definitely makes a bit more sense. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason why we have OpenSim and these uh, wonderful modeling programs. I mean, because we're usually interested in the muscle forces and internal forces. Um, so it's, 
I mean, that's the greatest question in the field of biomechanics. So there's a reason why it is. Right. And it's, it's like you can measure ground reaction forces and draw conclusions from that that are correct, that are, you know, about, okay, ground reaction forces decrease, but then continuing to conclude that that would lead to a reduction in injuries where you really like have, have the problem there. So it's also like kind of an issue of interpreting your results correctly and being able to draw out accurate conclusions. Yeah. So if the premise fails, the, uh, the conclusion becomes a little bit shaky. Um, right. Another thing I guess is, is that uh, now that inertial sensors are a huge thing now, mm-hmm. uh, people are putting these inertial sensors, uh, let's say on their shoes and trying to use that as an indicator of uh, ultimate stress. And that's kind of, yeah. since that's measuring acceleration of the lower limb, uh, that's kind of a proxy for ground reaction force. And that kind of has the same tacit logic. Yeah, that's true. I think that's really interesting because I, I think we're trying to take IMU data and turn it into some measure that we've studied previously. Like, I, I guess it's a little bit differently, but like, different than what we we're saying, but like using IMUs to uh, calculate um, joint angles and things like that when perhaps we should study more just like the raw signal that we're getting from IMUs. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, uh, usually, uh, Integrating signals doesn't result in the cleanest of results. <laughs> um, so you also talk about the difference between scalars and vectors, and specifically with speed being a scalar um, and having magnitude but no direction, whereas velocity is a vector, so it has both magnitude and direction. But often or sometimes velocity is used where it should actually be speed. And I don't have like numbers on this, but I could guess that it happens quite often. Um, what do you think is the significance of this confusion? Uh, when you say significance, you mean like what are the implications or like what could? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is actually something that one of the or yeah one of the reviewers pressed us on pretty hard. And although I can't I can't think of a an extreme direct implication that's like very clear like I can with all of the joint reaction force stuff. Um, but to me, it's kind of a matter of principle, consistency, and also avoiding possible confusion. Let's say if somebody from physics comes into biomechanics and they're reading a paper and they're like, oh, this person keeps saying velocity, 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 like where are their directions? Or, um, so there could be instances when somebody comes from an outside field and we're not on the same page as them because we're not sticking to the same uh, language that they are. Uh, so I think it's kind of for consistency purposes. So that that was my primary concern. Also, the question becomes, what is if you're going to use velocity, what is the advantage of it? Um, because presumably, if you're abandoning the term speed for velocity, there should be some sort of argument or benefit to doing it. But if there's not, then I kind of just don't understand why somebody would. Yeah. Another one that you talk about is the confusion with weight and gravity. And I like that you mentioned how companies exploit misconceptions like this um, by making claims like a treadmill reducing weight or inferring a microgravity situation. Um, So it's like, they're making claims uh, that sound really cool, but they're not necessarily accurate as to what is actually going on. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. 
Yeah. So the <laughs> that treadmill suggestion was actually from one of the reviewers. He was terrific, or she. I don't know, but. <laughs> But this in general is something that was kind of interesting, and it wasn't until uh, actually Jason Lake pointed out a couple of sports science studies where people would uh, increase or decrease external load on a person uh, with some sort of training. Um, but it wasn't until I really thought about the dynamics of it, like, oh, if you're just applying load to the center of mass, for example, that is not representative of what's going on in like a hypergravity or microgravity environment. Like, there's a difference between adding load and actually having gravity change because then all the other resulting dynamics change as well. Um, and I don't know if it's, I don't know why people are trying to use these terms or trying to simulate a hypergravity environment, like we're ever going to be in a hypergravity environment <laughs> or anything like that. Um, uh, but I don't know, maybe, I can speculate that these things kind of sound more sciencey or sophisticated. Uh, yeah. So they may kind of appeal to people. Like if uh, if you tell a patient you're going to put them on a microgravity treadmill or make them weightless on a treadmill, they may kind of that may seem more appealing. Like they're doing something that that's higher tech right. versus just telling them we're going to put you on a treadmill that kind of just reduces the loading a little bit. Right. And I, I relate to that because I feel like when we're giving lab tours and we have, um, I mean, the treadmill is named the alter G. And so we're like, Oh yeah, this is the, you know, the alter gravity treadmill. It definitely, I feel like sound, yeah, it sounds cooler. And I feel like resonates more with people than having more of like a accurate, but less exciting term for it. Yeah, so I guess we can thank the marketers for that. <laughs> so you write that you want the paper to call or to serve as a call to action for the field. So what what is the action that you want people to take from from reading your paper? So the call to action is for reviewers, for teachers, for professors, uh, for researchers, for everyone really to try to uh, stick to the constructs that you actually, or I guess fix the mapping of constructs to language because these things do have implications down the line. Mm -hmm. uh, so if someone fully doesn't fully understand the differences between net joint forces and joint contact forces, then this can lead to an entire literature that's based on kind of a false premise or, uh, or an idea that's strict, that's not due to, proper education or careful use of terminology. Mm -hmm. um, so this can happen on each of those levels. So an undergrad first learning about joint forces, it can happen as somebody submitting their first study and they were sloppy with language uh, and a reviewer not catching it or not pressing them on it. Um, so kind of each of these levels, people can kind of improve and uh, try to do things better, I think. Well, it was really great reading that paper and to really think about how these misconceptions can have an impact on our research. So I appreciate you taking the time to kind of dissect some of those and encourage people to be more rigorous with their work. Yeah, thank you. It was a, it was a fun paper. Yeah, it was fun to read. Before continuing with this awesome interview, Boom wanted to thank Sanford Health for their support 
with starting the student voices segment of Biomechanics on Our Minds. Sanford Health is one of the nation's largest health systems offering integrated care, genomic medicine, senior care and services, research and affordable insurance, and Stanford Health also offers both students both clinical and non-clinical internship experiences throughout the year, as well as graduate student training through a partnership with the University of South Dakota Department of Biomedical Engineering. These student opportunities include biomechanics internships through the Sanford Sports Science Institute and Sanford Orthopedics and Sports Medicine in Sioux Falls, South Dakota and Fargo, North Dakota, and provide mentorship, professional development, and growth opportunities, including gaining real-world experience and building useful skills to prepare you for the future. To learn more about student opportunities at Sanford Health, you can visit sanfordhealth.jobs. Another one that was fun to read, uh, we have been talking for a while already, so I maybe won't spend um, as much time on this paper, but it was about strengthening the practice of exercise and sports science research. And it was published in 2018 in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. And so this was a cool paper and it discusses problems in exercise and sports science and also proposes some solutions, which I really appreciated. And I thought maybe we could just talk about at a high level, some of the problems that you noted and some of the solutions just as kind of like key takeaways from the paper. Yeah, sure. And some of them kind of speak for themselves. So one is too few longitudinal studies. Um, but another is inadequate validation of surrogate outcomes. By this, you're referring to using outcomes that we're capable of measuring that are supposed to be related to measures that we aren't able to easily measure. Um so like I said, knee osteoarthritis and the knee adduction moment is a surrogate measure of medial knee loading because we can't um, easily measure uh, loading that's happening inside of the knee. Um, but is this point more focused on um, an actual study that's aimed at validating some surrogate outcomes or referencing using outcome measures that other re- uh, researchers have maybe not adequately validated? I think it's kind of both. Um, mm-hmm. So one of one of the main things that we had in mind there, and we kind of followed this paper up with a much longer and denser paper, uh, but surface electromyography. And if you look at a lot of a lot of the strength training and also physical rehabilitation research, uh, people will look at a whole sleuth of exercises and uh, just look to see uh, what elicits the greatest surface EMG amplitude and uh, what doesn't seem to elicit high amplitudes and then kind of make recommendations for exercise prescription based on that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is one of those examples where, well, you could take people through training programs with different exercises, but it's much, much easier to just slap electrodes on people and have them do the exercises. Uh, But in this case, it's not completely clear whether or not surface EMG amplitude does have even a monotonic relationship with uh, the with how large of a stimulus it is. Right. Um, but it is something that uh, maybe it's possible to validate surface EMG as an actual surrogate outcome. So if we know that there's X percent of a difference in surface EMG amplitude, this might correspond to roughly uh, some sort of difference in uh, strength following the protocol. Um, but I guess, so that's, so if you can measure the longitudinal outcome, you should measure the longitudinal outcome. That's kind of the gold standard. Right. Um, but if we 
if you're going to do these kind of short-term studies with surrogate outcomes, then you should validate the surrogate outcome. Another point you make is reporting non-significant or trivial results. And I really like this point um, because we don't want to bias towards positive results. And I think that researchers are maybe becoming more open to this idea of reporting non-significant results. Um, But I was wondering if you have any ideas um, how to do this and still be able to publish or be able to draw conclusions from it. Yeah. So, so actually since publishing this, I've uh, in part due to my mentors, but I have pretty strong opinions against null hypothesis significance testing now. Um, Mm. So uh, something that I've been uh, more and more that I've been viewing more and more highly is the, just this estimation approach. So we're not necessarily interested in whether or not something is or is not discernible from zero. Uh, That's like a very binary outcome, and it's kind of weird to dichotomize things like that. But what is more interesting is that we're making these measurements. We're getting measures of, we're getting a point estimate, and we're getting a confidence interval. Mm -hmm. So we have an estimate of the effect and kind of an uncertainty of the effect. Uh, So we can kind of look at that and say, oh, okay, so if we, although this confidence interval passes zero, uh, where this point estimate is, it's kind of an important region. And even if you look at the upper bound of the confidence interval, wow, that's actually super important and could be meaningful. Um, So kind of looking at all of the information we have and trying to draw inferences from it. Um, In addition, even if the, let's say you do have a very precise estimate around zero, Mm -hmm. and it does seem like there's real, really like a negligible effect there. then that's important because, well, do you want somebody else to carry out this study and uh, potentially find the same thing? Or uh, if it was a really, really expensive, well-done study, it doesn't make sense just to let that sit in your file drawer. Other people could use that information and build upon that information. Maybe you try to replicate the study if they saw that something wasn't done as well as it could have been, uh, so on and so forth. So. I think that we stand on the shoulders of giants and kind of science builds on itself is a very important aspect of science. So it builds on itself in both the negatives and the positives if you want to view an null result as a negative. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I wish that you know, more papers even included, you know, an appendix at the end that um, even if they do have significant results, you know, maybe some things that they tried that didn't work or um, yeah, a little like advice section at the end. <laughs> would be really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in general, I think all results should be reported in some form. If you did something, you should probably report yeah. it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so there's two other points that you made. The first is having too few replication attempts, um, which I think is a great point to make that our work should be repeatable. Um, And then the second is insufficient scientific transparency, which I also really agree with that this is a problem. Um, How do you think that we can be more transparent with our work? So I think biomechanics has gotten pretty good with the whole uh, data sharing, model sharing, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think biomechanics is kind of at the point where, in my opinion, one of the best ways they could benefit is from pre-registration. Yeah. In that we do these studies where we have so many potential outcome measures, 
if I'm reading a study and you recorded uh, data from, I don't know, let's say four different joints, but you have three degrees of freedom per joint, or if you did muscle modeling, you have, I don't know, like what, 90 degrees of freedom, something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so that's just for like one outcome. Then you can collect EMGs, you can collect whatever. Uh, you can collect force plate data. So you collect all of these things at once. You can filter these data so many different ways. You can run the statistics so many different ways. How do I know that what you report is kind of what you intentionally, originally intentionally set out to report? Right. Um, so a pre-registration in which you uh, go on to, like, for example, Open Science Framework and put in what your study is going to be, what your primary outcome measures are, what your hypothesis is, what your research question is, how you're going to analyze the data, all of that. And then you end up reporting the final study and then I can see this is what you set out to do and this is what you did, this is what you changed, this is why you changed it. It's. I think it's just a much more rigorous way of doing science. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it helps with not just being transparent, but also making sure that you've really thought out well your experiment and that you're capturing all the measures that you want to capture in order to do the analyses that you want to do. Um, and so I think it really helps you um, lay out your research plan a lot, a lot better. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. And I guess to build on that uh, just quickly, uh, so there are two different ways that people can think about doing these things in advance. One of them is pre-registration in which they put their uh, study registration or their study protocol research question, all of that on a public repository, although you can delay when it comes out. And there's also this new publication format. Some journals have it, some journals don't, but we have a paper coming out that kind of describes it in greater detail. And there's some other literature on this, but it's called registered reports in which you take your study rationale, so background information and your study methods, and you submit it for peer review before you collect any data. The editor sends it out and reviewers review it and they give you feedback on your methods and rationale before you collect any data. So the idea being you don't submit for publication. They're like, oh, you should have done this. And sometimes it's an excellent suggestion, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, so in this case, you're getting your methods vetted before you actually carry out your methods. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Right. It does slow down science a little bit because you kind of need to send things out and get feedback and go back and forth a bit. Um, but I I think that's a better way to do peer review. Yeah. And I, mean, I feel like it, it feels like it's slowing it down at the beginning, but then because it's so well-planned, I think at the end of the day, it, make, it helps things go much more smoothly um, when it comes time to actually do the experiment. Yeah. And then uh, actually, so once you send it back for peer review after you carry out the experiment, the the reviewers have already seen your intro and methods and they're kind of just seeing that things are written up properly and in accordance with what they were, were originally. Right. And at least for me as a reviewer, I spend the most time on the methods, thinking about the methods, making sure they're answering what the authors want to answer. Mm -hmm. So that saves a lot of time and kind of future rounds of peer review. Yeah. And it's it's really cool to to be able to get feedback on that yeah before you start because a lot of times you're you know only working with a couple people and so to be able to have an outside perspective is a great opportunity as well yeah totally agree 
And I should mention there there is incentive for the researcher there. They you get what's called in principle acceptance after the first after they accept your methods. Mm. So so long as you follow your methods and do everything in a way that's kosher, uh, your article is guaranteed to be published there. Yeah, that's really cool. So for a couple of the solutions to the problems that you suggest in here, um, you offer up the an award the suggestion of an awarding badges of excellence. Um, and so I was wondering what you suggest we use as badges of excellence or just like actually give people, you know, badges. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I know it sounds like a metaphor, but it's not a metaphor. <laughs> it sounds exciting. <laughs> uh, so on some publishers do this where if you conform to open science standards, they have these badge, badges that are available through, I think it's open. I think it's the open science collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically it says that your data are freely available or you pre-register your study or you conform to whatever open science standard. Mm-hmm. And it, it just kind of goes on, on the paper itself. So it's like a little badge. That's really cool. Well, I would like to award you a badge of excellence for helping to make the field more excellent. Um, Thank you. But uh, (laughs) yeah, so I really appreciate you uh, talking about that, about both of these papers. And I think this will be really beneficial for people to listen to and also uh, for them to take a look at that work and and really um, inspire to do good research. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So the question that we like to end with is what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics or um, in your field of research, computational neuroscience? So I'm I'm kind of torn with this. Um, so I'm very, very excited about increases in computational power and the ability to just work with a lot more data, build more complex models and do things in a much more sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also kind of hesitant because I don't want us to lose aspects of experimental design and thinking about research methods and uh, thinking about these classic ways to actually get really, really high quality data in a way that we know is minimally biased and um, that actually, when the data are actually collected to answer the question we want to answer. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm kind of torn if big data is the most important thing or just strong computational power. But I guess either way, strong computational power will allow us to deal with more data. So even if it's obtained through experiments or otherwise, um, I think the ability to build nice models and Bayesian statistics. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that is really exciting. I think there's a lot of potential for it making a, a big impact from both like being able to use this big data, but then also being able to then like understand um, more like person specific medicine as well. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I mean, that's actually what a lot of my current work does. So that's, that's perfect. I guess trying to understand individual level uh, what's going on. Can I predict things from individual characteristics? Right. Yeah, that's very cool. So if people listening want to follow your work, where can they find you? Uh, They can primarily find me on Twitter at Mm -hmm. Um, 
I have a website, but I don't really update it too much. It's just andrewvygotsky.com or uh, yeah, Google Scholar ResearchGate. Um, cool. Twitter is probably the best way. All right. Well, thank you. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. This was great.